Fred Ricciani, TSC, the TSC News Podcast. On this week's episode, I chat with Eric Cusin. He is the founder of We're All a Little Crazy, a nonprofit advocating mental health programs, mental health discussion, trying to solve the epidemic that is mental illness. Eric Houston's a man that is a former sports executive, somebody who had a ton of mental health struggles, overcame them, and today he works with a number of celebrities in the entertainment space, the sports space, as well as medical practitioners to help people overcome the odds, to help people live their best life this guy is truly making a positive impact i had the pleasure of meeting him when i interviewed dwight doc gooden at the way back screening back in march when things were sort of normal or actually but right before things stopped being normal it was the last time i was in new york i interviewed doc gooden i chatted with eric i'd say hey i'll, I'll see you at the upcoming mets mental health night and all of a sudden boom coronavirus hit chaos ensued we ended up recording this interview at the time when new york was the epicenter of the coronavirus luckily it isn't at the moment and knock on wood it remains that way but we talk about the pandemic we talk about his incredible journey we talk about all the amazing work he's doing and we talk about why his foundation is different from other foundations a lot of foundations talk about buzzwords and hashtag mental health and they they do a lot of talk but not a lot of action so eric goes in depth on what his foundation does, his incredible journey, and how you can participate and how you can overcome your own personal mental health struggles. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this incredible, enlightening interview I did with Eric Cusin. We're talking to Eric Cusin, the founder of We're All a Little Crazy. Now, I definitely want to dive into uh, your journey and everything you've overcome to inspire people, but can you tell us a little bit about your organization? Yeah, absolutely. So the organization was brought about from a lived experience that I had. So it's interesting, you know, when people uh, introduce me and they say, you know, someone who helps people out with mental health. And I do from a peer to peer and an advocate perspective. I, I certainly don't from a professional's perspective. Um, I'm not a trained doctor. Um, I, I didn't spend a ton of time in school learning about mental health. I, I got my education on the mean streets of life. <laughs> um, and, and when people hear the story, when we go into it, they'll understand it. But, um, the, the, the organization is in place. I'd say from a macro standpoint, there's two main functions of the organization. One is awareness and perception to totally change the way in which people think about mental health. Because I think that the way we as a society think about mental health, unfortunately, is, there's a lot left to be desired. There's a lot of change that we need to make. People see it only as a mental illness issue and that it only affects 20% of society. And that couldn't be further from the case. So there's an awareness piece we'll get to. And then the other piece is programmatic. Um, what we do boots on the ground because we could have the greatest awareness campaign in the world if we're not helping people directly hands-on and bringing our message face-to-face -face with people, there's only so many people we can affect through you know, social media and online. So it's it's a combination of those two. And the goal is, you know, the, the, the we were joking a little bit before about the name of the organization, the real campaign within We're All a Little Crazy being seen here is an American Sign Language sign. So it's your thumb at your chest and your pinky pointed out at the other person you're talking to or people generally as a group. And you're saying, you and I were the same. The reason we're the same is not because Fred, I have anxiety, you have anxiety, I have depression, you have depression, but we're the same because I've faced challenges in my life that have affected me. You face challenges in your life and have it that have affected you. Look no further than what's going on with COVID right now. These are challenges that are affecting all of us. 
they're impacting the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that our emotions are heightened. And so because of that, if we all face challenges, there's no reason for us not to talk about it because there's no shame in it because it's something we all go through. And you and I have seen this time and time again. There are a lot of great organizations like yours that, that really help out people that have boosts in the ground. And then there are organizations or endorsers that just kind of use mental health, mental illness kind of as, as a buzzword. We won't name names, but, you know, you know, it's one thing to say it and say, yeah, we help people. It's another thing for organizations like yours to actually help people and have people on the ground positively impacting others. So for somebody that's watching or listening to this that says, okay, what separates you guys from the others? What would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, when you talk about buzz terms and buzzwords, the the reason I partner with athletes and celebrities is not because they're athletes and celebrities and there's a brand that I'm trying to build to sell more product, to get more T-shirts on people, to generate more revenue. In fact, if you look on our site and you look at the the stuff that we do, the the donation links and the way that we ask for money is very toned down. You know, if you, if you want to look at a distinction in the space of the of the people and the organizations that are doing this for the right reasons, look no further than the people who lead. Unfortunately, with just the disorder name, um, just the label, and that's all they share. And then when there's other stories out there, let's talk about the sports space for a second. When Andrew Luck shares a story of burnout. When um, we see uh, Delante West on the side of the street and his shirt is off and he's barely able to put sentences together, are the people and the organizations that are out there actually speaking and helping moving the narrative forward and explaining why those situations are happening, coming to the defense of those people, explaining some of the, the, the situations and the struggles they may be facing, or are they staying in their lane, not saying anything because it's not an endorsement opportunity for them, so they don't feel like it's their place to get involved. And so I'd say the people who are doing this out of the goodness of their heart, the people that are doing this because they really want to help people, look, there's always an entrepreneurial angle to things because people need to eat. They need to be able to put food on their table. And I get that side of things. Never fault anyone for generating revenue for something that brings people together. At the same time, where is your heart in it in terms of actually getting in the trenches, rolling up your sleeves the way that we met Fred, you know, doing a movie screening and instead of just getting people to come to the movie screening because Dwight Gooden is there and okay, that's good enough because now we got people and working with Warner brothers to watch this movie. And now they'll talk about that movie with their friends and family. Our thought was let's actually open up this to a conversation. Let's talk with doc about what his life was like, what it was like to watch his sister get shot in the head and the trauma of that carrying his baby nephew as his sister was shot. His father never told him he loved him. What does that feel like to go through? How does that compare to the character that was in the movie that we were screening, a Ben Affleck character at the time in the movie The Way Back, and actually bring this conversation to people so that they can relate in a way that say, that wasn't my exact experience, but same here. I've been through something like that. I watched another family member get sick or get injured the way that Dwight did, or I had a family member, maybe it wasn't my father who wasn't very good at telling me the way they felt about me emotionally and thought that I should keep my emotions to myself. So the organizations that are out there that are doing the positive changed things that we need to take place are the ones who are changing the narrative, number one, making it more inclusive and explaining how this is a topic for all of us. And then number two, we're actually bringing program, you talked about the term boots on the ground, a little bit term that I, I use a lot as well, is actually creating programming where you're helping to educate people so they're making better informed decisions on their own. Because we could talk until we're blue in the face. 
if you can't teach people then what they should be doing for their own lives and how to be the healthiest that they can be, you can only go so far. And your journey is pretty inspirational as well. You touched on it a little bit about how you know you overcame your struggles to form this great foundation. But I want to go a little bit deeper. Now, you worked in sports before founding this organization, right? Yeah, correct. So um, I was fortunate enough. I knew at an early age that I wanted to be in professional sports. So I did the whole internship route in high school, even in college. Started with the Long Island Surf, which was a USBL team, international management group, the New York Jets, a British basketball team in, uh, called the London Towers in the UK. And then I, I when, my senior year when I was graduating, I, I basically applied to four places because I wanted to stay in New York and they were the four major leagues. And I got three quick rejection letters and was fortunate enough that the fourth one uh, wasn't a rejection letter. It was a call from a guy named Chris Granger, who now is the president of of everything over in Detroit with the Red Wings and that whole group over there. Um, and he was the HR director with the with the NBA at the time, uh, was an alum of Cornell where, where I had gone to school and um, I guess gave me a chance because of that. That was in October of my senior year. I went through eight phone interviews, I think was the number. It was either eight or nine. Wow. And the ninth phone interview was in March of my senior year. Still didn't have the full-time job locked up yet. And the, the call was on a digital answering machine. And I heard the voice on the other end and eight in the morning on a Friday morning, it was, hey, Eric, this is Mark Tatum with the NBA. And obviously Mark Tatum wasn't a name back then. Um, but I knew Mark because he had given a guest lecture and when I was a freshman at school, he was with Major League Baseball at the time. And so I picked up the phone. I said, Mark, you and I, we met three years ago. We went to lunch. My name was picked out of a hat to go have lunch with you. And he pretended like he remembered me. And to this day, still claims that he does, he, that he did from, from that talk. Um, but he's the one I ended up actually going to work for at the NBA League office. Uh, was in marketing partnerships at the time doing sponsor-related activities. Uh, that wasn't necessarily what I was completely passionate about. And so an opportunity opened up. Uh, David Stern was looking for someone to run this program called the Business of Basketball, which was uh, meant to show the players how the business side functions. And so I went on the road to all 30 teams at the time for about a three year period. And we would deliver presentations to them on sponsorship sales and ticket sales and TV rights and showing players how revenues got generated and how that contributed to the overall pot of what they call basketball-related income, of which the players got a percentage of that as part of their salary cap. And then that salary cap got divvied up amongst the players. So if the pie grew, the amount that the players were able to make grew as well. And so – had an amazing time doing that for three years, working in what was called team marketing and business operations at the time. Uh, still is there the department there right now that focuses on being the marketing think tank, sharing ideas amongst the various teams uh, at the league level. And then from there, the career kind of went off to the team side of things. I helped start up a WNBA team in Chicago, the Chicago Sky. Went to Phoenix, a little bit more of an established franchise, uh, overseeing their group sales department with the Suns and the Mercury and an and a ECHL team called the Phoenix Roadrunners. Uh, back to New Jersey to oversee the sales and service department for the New Jersey Devils. Got a chance to go to the Stanley Cup Finals in, in 2012. And then finally, uh, the position where unfortunately hit the fan for me with my mental health was down in Florida with the Florida Panthers. I was their chief revenue officer six months in. And, you know, very current events right now, good to share with your audiences. 
the owner of the team who had brought me down there, just on the team for a number of months at the time I came down there, is a guy named Vinny Viola, actually a New York resident, and uh, couldn't have been uh, a more supportive uh, when 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 I had my fall, I came up to him and I told him what was happening. And he said, we never leave a soldier out on the battlefield. He's he's a West Point grad himself. So he 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 certainly had the right to talk in those terms. And he said, take as much time as you need and come back and hit the ground running. And for that to come full circle now to see that he was the first fran- sports franchise owner to announce that no one on his staff was being laid off from a full time standpoint. Uh, there'd be no furloughs. No one would be having to take uh, percentages off for their salary. It's a guy that I take a lot of pride in that I work for. Wow, that's, that's incredible. So some people may ask, okay, you've had all these great career breaks and you're doing your thing. You're working for the NBA on the outside. I mean, you're living the freaking dream. So yeah. What, so I don't know I'm personally going to get into this, but what, no, ca- okay. what, what caused you to – kind of get into that mental downward spiral and what made you eventually get back up on your feet? Yeah. So, um, the, the situation that happened in Florida was started losing interest in things outside of the office. I wasn't interested in going to the gym, wasn't interested in seeing my friends, wasn't interested in going on dates, wasn't interested in watching my teams from New York on TV, though that's probably a whole nother (laughs) therapy session we could talk about as to why. Um, but the, the, the lack of interest was, was the first change that I noticed. And I justified that you mentioned, Oh, things are going well. Like you have the perfect life. You're, you're excited to be working in this industry. And that's how I felt at the time, a single dude going to a new market, you know, enjoying, you know, everything socially that was down there, everything professionally that was down there. But then that all got taken away from me. And I justified that by saying, this must be the world's way of telling me that work is really important. And I'm one step away from getting this dream job, which is being the CEO instead of the CRO of a team, the chief executive officer. So I need to, I need to focus even that much more on work. And that excuse only lasted about two weeks because about two weeks in, I just started losing all cognitive abilities. I remember waking up one morning in my bed and it was like pushing myself off of quicksand to get out of the bed, started walking to the closet like I had cinder blocks on my feet. I looked at a picture of my nieces on my, uh, on my dresser and I could remember their first names and people might think this is hyperbole to say this, but I couldn't remember their middle names. I was testing myself to try and see how much my brain had fallen and how little cognitive abilities were still there. Couldn't think of what to put on, whether to wear a button-down shirt or a T-shirt to work. Forgot that I should shower before I should even put clothes on. I mean, it was a mess. And I, I, I made myself go into the office somehow. And I, my office had a window where he overlooks the rest of the, um, the staff. And, and, and I'm looking at the staff at the time. And, and looking at the computer, it felt like bright, you know, if you remember the, the, um, the game bright lights, um, it was like, you know, I, I, I couldn't focus on anything. Everything just felt like it was grand central station to me. And, uh, this overwhelming feeling just got to the point where I had that conversation with Vinny that I was mentioning at the end of the day, I was supposed to speak to, um, uh, oh, excuse me, light brights, not bright lights, <laughs> uh, the game. Um, and, and so I'm speaking with, with Vinny and I'm supposed to be addressing this group of prospects that were coming in a suite. And I just didn't have it. Like the way that I'm talking with you extemporaneously right now, and it's just coming from my brain to my mouth, that connection wasn't there. And so I went home to New York. He was, like I said, very supportive. And I went to go see what's called a psychopharmacologist, which is a step above 
a psychiatrist when you're looking at medications being prescribed. And the first psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist, excuse me, that I saw looked at my chart, read all the things that I had answered on those little bubble questions of how are you feeling from a one to a five as it pertains to these areas. And he just looked him in the eyes and he says, you have a load of depression on top of anxiety. You need heavy artillery to knock yourself, knock, knock this out of you. And, and heavy artillery in, in his world was taking a ton of medication. And so I left my first doctor's visit uh, with five prescriptions uh, to take five different medications that all were supposed to be augmenting the other ones and working in combination with the other ones. And one was for generalized anxiety and one was for your serotonin reuptake inhibitors and one helped that serotonin reuptake inhibitor work better than the others. And it was just, it was, it was, you know, a chemistry experiment. And what ended up happening was I spent two and a half years literally laying horizontal in a bed, staring at the ceiling, no interest in watching TV, no interest in listening to the radio, dead to the world as I went and visited these doctors every four or so weeks, maybe every three weeks, and they would try and tweak a medication up or down or add another one here or there, take another one away. And so in total, I tried over 50 different psychotropic drug combinations wow. and none of them worked for me. Um, I then tried TMS therapy, which is, uh, stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. They put this half moon shaped object above your head and they try and shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain almost to wake up your neurons again and get them to start firing. And, uh, 23 sessions into that 23 days in a row, no, um, insurance, $350 a session. So there went my savings. Uh, I started to develop the first concept of, of what people discuss is what's a suicidal ideation. Um, a lot of people think of suicide and they think of it as it's a choice for this person because they're sad about something. That's not what I experienced at all. Nothing sad had happened to me in the last two and a half years. The only thing that had happened to me was I'd been laying in a bed and I was dysfunctional. And so what we'll find in a second when I explain the rest of the story, this buildup of stress and trauma in my system had gotten me to the point where I had this message playing over in my mind over and over again as I was looking at this bottle of pills and that message was swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle. And for those who've never felt it before, it feels like a magnetic pull, almost like your brain is making you do something that you don't want to do. So I'm literally sitting on my hands, stopping myself from going towards that bottle. And I'm fortunate enough that I'm around my family at the time. I scream out, you know, asking them for help. I tell them that we have to go somewhere, you know, that's a little more critical than just going to a general practitioner. And so we drive to what we were told was the best facility in the in the Northeast, which is Cornell Med uh, in, in New York City. And I check in there voluntarily to the psych ward, which is a scary term to say still to this day. And the first day that I'm there, I'm skipping a lot of details, but I meet with the attending psychiatrist and she says to me, you know, Erica, I'm looking at your list here right now. Uh, you've tried everything there is. I've looked at every medication. You tried TMS therapy. Your your last resort is to do shock therapy. And to hear last resort from a doctor is nothing I ever want any patient to ever hear, regardless of what the ailment is, physical or mental. And that shocked me at the time. But at the same time, when 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 you feel that way and you feel like you have tried everything, you listen to what the expert says. And so I did 12 sessions of shock therapy where they, you know, ECT is what they call it, electroconvulsive therapy. They put electromagnetic, uh, uh, not electromagnetic, they put electrodes 
on your brain and they shock your brain while you're under general anesthesia into seizure, trying to essentially wake the brain up. Um, and a lot of difficult, you know, experiences in the immediacy after each of those treatments, which again, I won't bore your listeners with, but I woke up uh, essentially after, you know, 12 weeks of doing that each time, the last treatment and I was done. There, there was nothing more to do. They'd done everything they could. And so I went back to that same twin bed that I grew up in, in Merrick, Long Island uh, at my parents' house thinking my life was over and there's no way of me coming back from this uh, unless Pfizer or, or Merck uh, developed some magic pill that works for me that for whatever reason the others hadn't worked at that point. So uh, luck would have it. My mother meets this woman who practices what's called integrative psychology. I'd never heard the term integrative before in the space of psychology or psychiatry. So I went to go meet with this woman. And when you asked me, you know, at the beginning, where did all this come from? This might shed light on her. This will shed light on it is I sat down on her couch and she's the first practitioner in two and a half years who, instead of her first question being, Eric, what are your symptoms? Her first question was, Eric, can you please tell me about your life? And very broadly, very openly, not like trying to hone in on, tell me about your relationship with your parents. Let's dive deeper into that. It was just a very open question. And so I said, oh, I'm in the middle of three boys. You know, we're all sports crazed family. We all played sports. We all follow sports growing up. Oh, okay, you're in the middle. So tell me about your older brother. And I tell that the story chrono chronologically happened this way because it shows that I wasn't even thinking that this was a factor. This was her leading me down this path. And so, you know, what, what, what came out was, what my life had been up until that point, because I didn't know any different. This is all I had known in life is from the time I was nine years old, my older brother had broken his femur bone, which is the largest bone in your body and was in a body cast for a year and homeschooled, uh, healed from that. And a month later was diagnosed with ALL, which is a children's form of leukemia, uh, went through five years of chemo radiation and miraculously came out and was in remission is in a Jeep driving with his friends, a open Jeep Wrangler with no seatbelts in the back on his way to an Islander game of all things, talking about sports, his friends driving erratically because that's what kids do when they have, uh, you know, permits and get to drive for the first time. And so the car loses control. My brother flies out of the back, lands on his head, cracks his head open, loses partial vision in his eye, is in ICU for a month, heals from that, goes to college. Things are going fine at college. A certain point in college, he starts to feel pain in his knee. They do all sports medicine testing. Everything's fine. So they decide to take blood tests and they realize that the same form of leukemia they had as a child has come back. So now they have to give him a much stronger chemo regimen. The drugs have gotten much more intense at this point. They're a lot more targeted. So they feel like they can give him a lot more of it. Well, it breaks his body down and his body goes into what's called septic shock, where your organs start uh, becoming toxic and attacking themselves. And that sends him into a coma. And now I'm up at school at this point. I'm now in college. My parents are back in New York, uh, in Long Island and, and in the city between hospitals with him. But he, he was at LIJ at this point or the old LIJ, I guess you call it that. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're basically living with him. I'm coming back every couple of days, seeing him laying there, you know, emotionless and motionless uh, as a tubes breathing for him. You can't tell from the doctors whether or not, you know, at this point in the, in the late 90s, he's going to have any brain activity if he wakes. Miraculously does wake and um, uh, they find out that his kidneys have failed from the rigor of the septic shock. So they have to give him, you know, put him on dialysis. We all get tested and my father's the closest match. So my father ends up donating a kidney to him and um, that all ends. And I think I'm finally in the clear 
And uh, about a month after that with my brother, the course of the next year, three of my close friends age 29 and 30, depending on which friend you're talking about, pass away from heart conditions wow. unexpectedly. So I'm telling the woman this story. And I think the reason why I tell the story in great detail, and great length is because not everyone is going to have had that same experience that I had. But what I learned from sharing that story is what this practitioner shared with me, her being an integrative practitioner, was that I essentially had this front row seat like a person has a front row seat at a basketball game, instead of the game playing out in front of me being LeBron James versus Steph Curry, uh, it was, you know, this this game of my brother going through all these challenges in life and my friends passing away. And when you're watching that from a front row seat, the analogy that she gave me was imagine it's almost like a wrestling match where every move your brother's making, every move your friends are making, it's like a muddy wrestling match and the mud is splattering on you each time. Well, you never had a chance like you do when you have a basketball game to get up and go take a shower and come back to the next game. You were sitting there constantly having these things happen to you. You were doing nothing about them because you didn't know to do anything about them. You only knew about physical health. And so these things, they build up inside you, that mud that keeps hitting your brain, body and muddying you up and you're not taking the shower. What those things are is those are a physical manifestation, the way that I'm describing it, of these two things called stress and trauma. And stress and trauma build in our system just like, uh, you know, plaque builds in our arteries. It's, 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 it's similar in that it's a cumulative effect. And so my cognitive dysfunction that I was having, the actual diagnosis that she gave me was PTSD. It was this buildup of stress and trauma over time from all these events that I had been seeing that started to shut down my system. The same way if someone has plaque buildup in their arteries, it is a chance to cause a heart attack or a stroke. Well, my central nervous system was on the outs. And, you know, my reasoning for starting this organization was very much what she explained to me there, because if she was telling me that things that I witnessed in my brother and my friends, people that I cared about, they're important people in my life brought my mental health to that point, my feedback back to her was job losses, divorces, breakups, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, cyberbullying, loss of loved ones, sickness of loved ones, getting berated at your job, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. Who in this world hasn't dealt with these complications that affect their mental health? That seems like it's everyone. And she kind of looked at me with this, you know, this sage type of smile. And she said, Eric, that's the way that I feel about things. Unfortunately, that's not the way our society feels about things. And so, you know, long story short, she sends me to a breathing course. I learned how to breathe properly and essentially uh, teach my central nervous system uh, how to calm down, how to relax, how to not expect that the next shoe is going to drop and the next bad thing is going to happen. And that was my ultimate healing mechanism was, was learning how to breathe properly. People probably think that that's insanity and that can't happen. But I, I can tell you that breathing is, is a very powerful tool. Meditation is a very power, powerful tool. Um, uh, uh, yoga is a very powerful tool. But when I started feeling better, I decided to share my story um, from, from doing all these breathing practices. And I put it out there on LinkedIn and it, it, three days, it gets read 150,000 times. And the bigger thing was I had over 400 calls come in because I put my personal telephone number on there from as far as China. And I'm tracking these things in an Excel spreadsheet. And the common theme that I'm hearing across all these calls 
is that no one's mentioning, Eric, I have PTSD also, or Eric, I have bipolar, and it's different than PTSD in this way. It wasn't about disorder at all. It wasn't about mental illness at all. Everyone was sharing a life experience they had been through. They'd lost a child to SID, sudden infant, infant death syndrome, or a woman, you know, I, I give this story just to show the, the range of, of what affects people. There's a woman who called me and said that she was married to a beautiful man, they're both 32 years old. They've been married since 25. It's been seven years of bliss. They have two great kids, live in the white picket fence. Everything's fine financially. But she wakes up, up every morning obsessing over the fact that she broke up with her boyfriend and from college and not sure if she made the right decision, right? And so you hear these stories and you hear what we do to ourselves in terms of obsessing over thoughts of things that have happened in our past and decisions that we've made. You hear stories of things that life has handed to us, like the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone. I think the loss of a child. Um, and, and you start to see the spectrum of all these things that happen and you say, mental health lives on this continuum that we all live on, each of us are affected to different levels, but what is it about that that's not getting through to people that we as a society aren't understanding about mental health? And, and so I went to the largest nonprofit uh, web pages in our country, I went to the government websites, and I found three main issues that ultimately, and then I'll stop, that made me decide to, to start this organization. The three issues that, that these organizations used to proactively try and help us get to a better place with mental health, I actually think are moving us further and further away as a society from coming together. So the first one is they all start with the stat one in five people are mentally ill. Well, it, as a marketer, that's very problematic because if you're saying one in five people are mentally ill and you read all these articles where mental health and mental illness are interchangeably used, guess what? It doesn't matter what the stats are. If you're telling people it's only 20%, they're using that number, making it seem like it's a high number. That's 48 million people in the United States. That's a lot of people. Well, a number that's a hell of a lot bigger than 20% is all the other people, the 80%, that we're telling them essentially that they're okay, healthy, normal, fine, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with them. And my example is case in point that when we experience traumatic events, we're not okay, healthy, fine, and normal. There's things we have to do about them. We can't just sit there and let them fester. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was, you know, we talked about campaigns even before we got on this call. All the campaigns were mirror image copies of one another. It was an action word followed by stigma. So stop the stigma, stop the stigma, erase the stigma. And if you peel away the underlying tone, this is an agency or an organization saying to you, Fred, to you, Eric, to you, Dwight Gooden, you need to stop the stigma. You need to stop the stigma. You need to erase the stigma. Because if it's coming from an organization, that means the message is being delivered from a group of people to a group of people. Well, guess what? What they're essentially saying is, essentially saying is you're the people who are stigmatizing these poor people who are going through this. You need to stop doing that. And that's not going to work. That's not going to bring people together. The The campaign that brought everyone together around cancer was, was everyone knows someone affected. That put us all in the same playing field. Well, with mental health, everyone is someone affected. And yet we're still at this place where we're saying there's one in five people versus the four in five people. And we need to get those four in five people, the group of them who are stigmatizing the one in five, we need to get them to stop and stomp that. 
that's not going to work. That's not going to bring people together. That's not going to make us share our similarities. And then the final piece and the reason why you saw me going around with Dwight Good and you asked about the differences between different organizations and, you know, why some should be trusted, why some are doing things just advantageously. My reasoning for getting involved with athletes and celebrities was that I thought that they had unique stories to tell beyond just raising their hand and saying, I have bipolar disorder. I have uh, generalized anxiety disorder. What the media was doing with these celebrity stories, look no further than Ron Artest met a world peace when he shared after he won the title that he wanted to thank his psychiatrist and everyone said he's crazy. And Britney Spears, it was Britney Spears has depression, so she shaves her head and they share they show all these pictures of her shaving her head. And Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, so she's a hot mess. And, you know, Charlie Sheen, you know, he has addiction and he can't leave his house anymore. And he's a he's a he's a, he's a fraction of the person that he was. Well, who is able to relate to that? If we're trying to get through to people how important mental health is for all of us, and you're only showing the far end of the spectrum, and you're showing the catastrophe stories, you're showing the Kate Spade and the Anthony Bourdain's and the loss of life, and you're showing the erratic behaviors, that's not going to relate to most people. People need to hear the day-to-day -day struggles of getting out of bed in the morning, fighting with my thoughts, having a foggy brain. And so... The idea for me was to bring together these athletes and alliance members to talk about the day-to-day -day struggles that we all go through that's related to everyday life, the loss of a, of a loved one. The, the, in Dwight's case, again, the, the watching your family member be shot at, that's a very traumatic event that most people don't know. And so that in, 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 in totality is the reason why we wanted to put these messages out there and then wanted to get these programs, boots on the ground for schools, for colleges, for offices for sports teams for for servicemen and women those are our five main areas of focus is because there's no one out there explaining to society that mental health needs to be looked at like physical health does something that all of us are focused on something that all of us need to be proactive about not something that we wait for the last minute for a disorder to develop where it's already hit the fan like what happened with me and then we have people spending years of their life trying to dig themselves out of it that's just a completely inefficient scary and actually very dangerous way for us to handle it which is probably the reason why we're losing a million people a year to suicide that's just, that's an, just incredible an incredible story, story. So, so thank so you so thank much you for, so for sharing that and everything <laughs> and, and, I, and i gotta say too just in terms of breathing and everything i mean i'm somebody that's dealt with some anxiety and, and i've dealt with ibs for over over a decade now and Lots of stress yep. at work. And I'll tell you firsthand, yoga and especially breathing, even like basic breathing you get from your smartwatch, like a Fitbit, it makes a world of difference. Now, obviously, and you talked about this actually in your panel with Doc Gooden that I covered for the way back screening. It's about dieting, too. I mean, all those things kind of factor into your mental health, right? Well, look, the, the breathing piece, the very simple science behind it. So, you know, don't have to go into too much detail, but that way people can have some confidence in this is. There's a, there's a nerve that goes from your brainstem all the way down to your stomach. And you talk about nutrition. This will also talk a little bit about how nutrition comes into play. That nerve is called the vagus nerve. It's the largest nerve in our body. So think of it as the nerve superhighway that sends messages to the rest of the nerves in our body. And it makes sense that we developed as human beings this way because if a car crashed through the wall that you and I are talking in a studio in, the two of us would make this sound. <gasps> we'd gasp and we'd be incredibly scared that this just happened and freak out about it. Well, think about the child who's got a mother who is terminally ill and is always worried about hearing this bad news that their mother passed away. 
or the parent who's got a child who's being bullied at school and is fearful that the child's going to do something to themselves, hurt themselves, or is going to come home crying because of what the kids did to them, or the person who goes into work every day who's got an abusive boss who's yelling at them every single day and scared about what that situation might be like coming in because it literally makes them feel awful going in every day. You add these things up over time, that means that what we're doing is we're not breathing properly because of the things that we're seeing. So that example, which is an extreme of the car coming through the wall, we're essentially seeing that through different things in our life that are happening to us and we're not breathing properly. So when we learn, you know, you mentioned just looking at an app and watching this thing go like this, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. What that does is it stimulates that vagus nerve in the neck to now feel like it can be relaxed. And when that's relaxed, that sends messages to the rest of the body, the rest of the body can relax. Now all of a sudden, instead of what we don't realize subconsciously is we're just, oh my God, hanging out there and we're like, we're not breathing properly. I could be at my desk right now and I'm gonna be breathing the way that I've taught my body how to breathe because it's become second nature to me now instead of fearing for the worst thing to happen. And so you literally have to, the reason we call the practice is STAR stands for stress and trauma, active release and rewiring, because we have to actively do things like a breath practice, like a yoga practice, like nutrition, to make sure that we're rewiring and releasing this tr stress and trauma from our system so that it doesn't affect our system the way that it can, like what happened to me. Uh, on the nutrition side of things, you know, there, there are people a lot more uh, well, well thought of in this space than I am and, and well practiced. Probably the best guy I would say to, to look up is a guy, uh, Mark Hyman, um, incredible with, with how foods affect us and impact us, the inflammation that happens from certain foods that we eat, and then that brain gut access, the connection between how neurotransmitters are made in our stomach and are able to travel up to our brain and how that helps us when we're eating the right foods to literally have the right brain energy and the right brain food to be able to function optimally. Man, just Great value in this conversation, man. I, I truly, truly appreciate it. I'm sure all the listeners and viewers do as well. And, of course, we can't ignore everything that's going on in the outside world, the COVID-19, the coronavirus outbreak. A lot of people are affected, you know, health-wise, financially, of course, you know, me mentally. I know I the first week everything broke out. I had a pretty rough week and eventually got back in, in the swing of things. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you give anybody in terms of mental health uh, for dealing with – something the magnitude of COVID-19. Yeah, this is cliche to say, so I'm going to go into greater detail than this, but having a routine, right? You hear that all the time is the most important thing. Now, why is routine the most important thing? This is hopefully where a little, diving a little bit deeper will help. Those of us who've dealt with mental health complications, let's take COVID out of it for a second, okay? Our reward center in our brain, unfortunately, this thing that we get that's called anhedonia, where we feel this flatlining and nothing matters anymore. The team that I root for, I can't get interested in. The money that I can make is no longer a motivator for me. The hugging of my nieces is no longer something that excites me anymore. Well, think about what that's going to do to your brain, again, outside of this COVID thing. It's going to make it so that you don't look forward to the next day, the next two days, the next week, the next month, because you're not working towards anything. There's nothing in your brain saying, I can't wait to see my nieces. I can't wait to reach this goal in work so that this bonus kicks in. I can't wait until I'm able to move to a new city because I've really been looking forward to try living in that place. Those things don't resonate to you. So what feels like for people who go through mental health challenges who have this anhedonia 
at, at a greater level, and I say greater level because mental health lives on this continuum, is it feels like there's no vision of the next day, two days, five days, week, month. Well, guess what? The rest of the world situationally is going through that right now because of COVID. Because COVID's taken away, when am I going into work? When is my child going to school? When you take away, when am I going to work? That takes away, when am I hitting my goals? When your child doesn't go to school, that takes away, when is my child getting into this college they want or getting into this AP course that they want to get into, right? Or just being able to stay in school and graduate, which is a great feat for some kids. And so you look at those things and you say, that's been taken away from people. So if the motivation, the vision, the interest, the desire, the passion has been taken away because situationally things have been taken away, Okay, you can have all the experts in the world say create a routine. Well, where does a routine come from? Okay, fine. You put in the staples of a routine, which are I'm going to wake up at this time. I'm going to go to sleep at this time. I'm going to eat three or five meals at these three or five times throughout the course of the day. Fine. That's only part of your day. What about the rest of your day? And so what I counsel people on right now is to say, think to a time period. Okay, so whatever date you want to focus on in your mind. When you look at when that end date happens, then you got to say to yourself, what is going to matter when that time comes? When I start to go back into work, what are the things on my desk that are going to matter? When my kids start going to school, what are the things that are going to matter for them? When my sports team starts playing again, what are the things that I'm going to be interested in then? What that helps you do now is that helps you put in your mind, write down on a sheet of paper and visualize something that we can't visualize right now, which is creating this purpose for something that's going to matter months from now, a month, two months, three months, whatever that is. That then gives us purpose in the here and now, in this moment, to prepare ourselves for what's going to happen when the floodgates open, we're able to go back. But if you don't make that something that you see, that you can physically write down, that you know is going to take place, it's impossible to have motivation in the moment to put within those routines between the meals and between the sleep to do your day to day. So it's a visualization practice that people who go through mental health complications, unfortunately, have had to live with and had to learn how to do their entire lives because these things are always taken away from them, is now you can start to put those things back in and you can say, I'm now actually creating a world for myself, even though the outside factors aren't there for me, I know they're going to be there for me and I can start to build those things in. So I'll give one example, right? Like, you know, again, the, your child wants to get into a school uh, when this is over, they're, they're a junior in high school right now, okay? Well, right now, your child's sitting on the couch thinking, big deal, school's out, I'll, I'll go, I'll watch my two hours of virtual classes, okay, no big deal. But, hey, when, 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 when this all ends and this all lifts, your child's going to then have to start thinking about what school are they going to go to, where are they going to be on campus, what is the campus life like? Knowing that that's going to be a situation, are you spending time with them on the computer right now? looking at college campuses, checking out what the, you, you can only do it virtually right now. You can't do it in, in real setting because you can't congregate together. But these are perfect examples of knowing what's going to be important and creating some things right now in your routine that will help you for later on so you're at a better place when this all lifts. Very well said. Eric, I seriously cannot thank you enough for the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. 
I certainly needed this conversation. I think a lot of people listening and watching this, whether it be on YouTube, Eminem, all over the world, uh, needed a conversation like this. Before we let you go, where can yeah. people find We're All a Little Crazy online and how can people connect? Yeah, so a lot of the movement has been towards the, the same here movement handles. So I'm going to give those out because it's kind of like a transition towards that because just because of how important same here is to us. So on Instagram and on um, Twitter, it's same here underscore global. Uh, and Facebook, it's just same here global. Um, and then for our website now transitioned over to samehereglobal.org. So you'll see, still see all the, we're all a little crazy mentioning, but just same here underscore global for Instagram and Twitter and then same here global for all the other places. Fantastic. Eric, thank you so much. Please stay safe and uh, we'll hope to have you on again sometime, hopefully under uh, better circumstances. Thanks so much, Fred. You as well.